1: Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode number 428 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all will recall, with last week's show, we talked about Braxton Bragg's decision to send James Longstreet up to Knoxville to have a go at Ambrose Burnside. And on the federal side, Ulysses S. Grant welcomed his buddy William Tecumseh Sherman to Chattanooga.
1: Although Sherman's troops were still marching toward Chattanooga, we talked about how Grant was nevertheless more than glad to see Sherman himself, since he was a subordinate whom Grant trusted and who trusted him.
0: Grant knew Sherman was a general who found ways to get things done rather than reasons they couldn't be done, which is probably one reason they got along so well, since that also perfectly described Grant himself.
1: Grant was especially glad to see Sherman because he had little confidence in the abilities of the other two generals who were his other top subordinates at Chattanooga. Bringing reinforcements down from the Army of the Potomac, fighting Joe Hooker also brought with him not only the albatross of his defeat at Chancellorsville, but a reputation for intrigue and backstabbing. As for George Thomas, Although he'd performed admirably at Chickamauga, he disappointed Grant a week before Sherman's arrival when Grant ordered Thomas to make an attack on the Confederate right at Chattanooga as a way to help relieve pressure on Burnside up at Knoxville. But Thomas had told Grant that there was no way he could launch such a strike since his horses and mules, after weeks of near starvation at Chattanooga, were too weak to pull his wagons and artillery pieces.
0: Such excuses frustrated Grant and lowered his opinion of Thomas. To Grant, George Thomas simply didn't have the hard-driving, can-do attitude that Grant had come to expect from his subordinates in the Army of the Tennessee out in Mississippi that had led to the capture of Vicksburg and the surrender of an entire Confederate army.
1: As we said last week, Sherman, pushing on ahead of his troops, reached the federal supply base at Bridgeport in northeast Alabama on November 13th and reported to Grant by telegraph. Grant, eager to see him, told Sherman to hurry on to Chattanooga by steamboat by way of the Tennessee River. When Sherman arrived, Grant was delighted to see him, and the very next day, Grant, Sherman, George Thomas and Baldy Smith went out to ride the Army's lines and allow Sherman to view the terrain.
0: We haven't talked about Baldy Smith in a few episodes, but as y'all will probably recall, Smith, as the Army of the Cumberland's chief engineer, had claimed the credit for planning the Browns Ferry operation and opening the cracker line.
1: Exactly. In any case, Grant, Sherman, Thomas, and Smith agreed on a plan to launch a major attack and end the frustrating stalemate that had kept the Federals bottled up at Chattanooga. Sherman would bring his troops onto the scene following the same route that Hooker's force had used when they marched into Lookout Valley. Sherman would then fake toward the southern end of Lookout Mountain with a single division, then cross the Tennessee at Brown's Ferry and duck into the hills on the north bank of the river, opposite Chattanooga.
0: Out of the Confederate site, Sherman would work his divisions around until they were opposite the north end of Missionary Ridge. To actually get across the river and approach Missionary Ridge, they would cross the Tennessee again, on another set of pontoon bridges Baldy Smith would build.
1: Once they crossed the river, Sherman's troops would strike the right flank of the rebel position at Chattanooga by attacking the north end of Missionary Ridge and roll up Bragg's lines from that direction. Such a course was especially desirable since both of Bragg's key railroads, the East Tennessee and Georgia, leading to Knoxville, and the Western and Atlantic, leading to Atlanta, both ran off to the east of Chattanooga, and would be vulnerable to a blow struck at the Confederate right flank.
0: Grant probably always intended to use Sherman and his veterans as his main strike force. As for George Thomas and his soldiers from the Army of the Cumberland, about whose morale Grant had his doubts, well, Grant would give them a secondary role. They were to make a great show of moving forward and threatening threatening the Confederate center along Missionary Ridge, Directly in front of Chattanooga, but Grant never intended for Thomas and his soldiers to actually assault Missionary Ridge, which was obviously too formidable a position to attack frontally.
1: While Sherman was slated to land the Federals' main blow against the Confederate right flank at the north end of Missionary Ridge, and while Thomas was putting on a show of force against the Confederate center, Thomas suggested Hooker assault and capture Lookout Mountain on the Confederate left. But Grant decided he had no need to capture that towering mass of earth and rock, and would rather have Hooker follow Sherman across the bridge at Browns Ferry and then back across the one at Chattanooga, thus circumventing Chattanooga Creek and getting into a position to join Thomas in threatening the Confederate center.
0: Sherman shared Grant's intense impatience to set the plan into motion as soon as possible, and he hurried off to try to catch the steamboat back to Bridgeport that night. However, he missed it. When he learned the only other available vessel was a five-man rowboat, he took that.
1: With a detail of four soldiers at the oars, Sherman set off down the river. They rowed all night with Sherman taking turns at an oar to spell the soldiers. At Shell Mound, he picked up a fresh crew of oarsmen and reached Bridgeport by daylight. Sherman's trip back to Bridgeport in a rowboat may make for a good story, but what exactly he thought he was accomplishing is open to to debate, because nothing, not even his manic, restless energy, was going to be sufficient to speed his troops on their way.
0: Crossing the Cumberlands with an army was a difficult enough undertaking even in the best of weather, and by November, the weather in southern Tennessee was anything but the best. Plodding through the barren and inhospitable mountains over muddy roads, Sherman's men suffered from hunger and fatigue.
1: To complete their misery, cold, hard rains poured out of the leaden skies day after dreary day. After his lead divisions got past Bridgeport, Sherman decided that his men had been on short rations long enough and directed that the supply wagons for each division should follow immediately in its rear, rather than having all the combat troops push on to Chattanooga and have the wagons follow as best they could through the mud. Well, Sherman's directive at least assured the men had moderate supplies of hardtack and salt pork each day, But it turned the last part of the march into a nightmare as countless wagons got stuck in the mud and the infantry and artillery units became mixed up with them and slowed down by them.
0: Meanwhile, at Knoxville, Burnside was growing increasingly anxious and, from Washington, a worried Halleck continued to bombard Grant with telegram after telegram Urging him to do something about the worsening crisis in East Tennessee.
1: For his part, Grant, at Chattanooga, was beside himself with impatience. As Sherman's formations finally started to arrive on the scene, George Thomas was forced to borrow some of Sherman's horses and mules to move a few of his cannon, since his own were indeed either dead or too weak to pull anything. It was obvious Sherman's divisions would be the only real maneuver-capable units Grant could use for his offensive, and he therefore had no choice but to wait for them to finish slogging through the mud and arrive at Chattanooga.
0: Grant had set November 21st as the original date for the opening of his attack, but because Sherman couldn't get into position in time, the operation had been postponed to the 22nd and then push back again to the 23rd.
1: Despite his disappointment each time he had to postpone the attack, Grant admitted that, quote, Sherman has used almost superhuman effort to get up, end quote. And a London newspaper correspondent referred to the entire 600-mile odyssey of Sherman's men from their camps in Mississippi to Tennessee as an, quote,
0: extraordinary march. And so it was, but that was small consolation for an impatient Grant who had been chomping at the bit to attack the Confederates and put an end to the frustrating stalemate that had kept the Federals bottled up in Chattanooga.
1: Over on the Confederate side of the lines, it would have been some comfort to Braxton Bragg could he have known how much vexation his actions, aimed at retaking Knoxville, were causing the Federals. After the Battle of Wahatchee, Bragg had known the enemy's success in reopening a steady flow of supplies into Chattanooga brought to an abrupt end any chance he had of starving the Yankees into surrender or forcing them into a ruinous retreat. In other words, his quasi-Siege of Chattanooga was over.
0: The question then for Bragg was what to do next. In answering that question, Bragg had to keep in mind that Sherman's force was moving toward Chattanooga. Confederate cavalry kept Bragg well informed of the progress Sherman's troops were making on their march. With Sherman getting closer each day, it would obviously be better if Bragg could do whatever he was going to do before this additional federal force arrived on the scene.
1: As we said before, Bragg's options were few. Retreat would be a disaster for Confederate morale, conceding defeat in the campaign by allowing the Yankees undisputed possession of the strategic prize of Chattanooga
0: a direct assault against the fortified Union lines at Chattanooga would also very likely end in disaster for the Confederates at the cost of five or 10,000 casualties.
1: In fact, Bragg had, in effect, conceded a direct assault against the Federal lines at Chattanooga was off the table when he took up his position outside the town after the Battle of Chickamauga and he settled into that quasi-siege of the place.
0: It would be almost equally pointless for Bragg to just leave his forces sitting on the high ground around Chattanooga and simply wait for Grant to attack him.
1: Because with the Federals now able to easily get supplies and reinforcements into Chattanooga, Grant could choose the time and place of his attack on the Rebel lines, and Bragg could be sure that in that case, the results wouldn't be to his liking.
0: Bragg couldn't go back he couldn't go forward and he couldn't stand still. The only possible alternatives then were moves by either flank.
1: However, a move around Grant's right flank, that is to the west, would take the Confederates directly into the path of Sherman's advancing force. It would also involve passing within dangerous proximity of Hooker's force in Lookout Valley. Any move to the west would also uncover and leave vulnerable Bragg's only meager line of supply, that is the Western and Atlantic Railroad running back to Atlanta.
0: And so that left just one option, a move by the federal left flank in the direction of East Tennessee and Knoxville. Happily for Bragg, such a move was promising in several ways.
1: Whereas a move to the west would expose his own supply line, a move to the east would more effectively cover it. Better still, the East Tennessee and Georgia Railroad connecting Chattanooga with Knoxville continued on into southwestern Virginia, and so it was another potential supply route for Bragg. Plugging into it would not only reopen the direct rail link from Chattanooga to Virginia, but would give Bragg a secure supply line for a possible lunge from East Tennessee into Middle Tennessee, where he could threaten Grant's line of supply and communication.
0: Sending a force from Chattanooga 100 miles north to recapture Knoxville faced some significant obstacles, such as the rough country, an inadequate number of wagons to move supplies, and, of course, the possibility Grant would react aggressively.
1: But the difficulties in overcoming those obstacles applied just as well or more, to anything else Bragg could have done. All things considered, an operation up into East Tennessee with the aim of seizing Knoxville was truly Bragg's only realistic option.
0: All that stood between Braxton Bragg and the realization of promising results was Ambrose Burnside and the 20,000 Federals of the Army of the Ohio. After coming down from Kentucky and seizing Knoxville and occupying East Tennessee, Burnside had spread out a bit and started threatening southwestern Virginia.
1: Naturally, that caused some alarm in Richmond, and the Confederate War Department had appealed to Bragg to do what he could, and Bragg had. On October 17th, he'd dispatched Major General Carter Stevenson's division and two cavalry brigades to East Tennessee with orders, quote, to press vigorously toward Knoxville.
0: Five days later, Bragg upped the ante by sending Brigadier General John K. Jackson's division to join Stevenson's force bringing total Confederate strength in East Tennessee to about 11,000 men.
1: By the by, this was the enemy pressure we talked about last episode that had prompted Grant to tell Sherman to cut loose of the railroad and to march as rapidly as possible to Chattanooga. Well, in any case, by the end of October, Burnside was reacting precisely as Bragg hoped he would, by pulling back into the area directly around Knoxville. Burnside's logistical situation in East Tennessee had never been good, and he had been forced to maintain a large garrison at Cumberland Gap to guard his line of supply back to Kentucky. So now, under increasing Confederate pressure, as he pulled back into the area around Knoxville, he could only muster around 14,000 troops 2,000 of which were local men who had only recently signed up to fight for the Union.
0: All of that's to say that by the time of the Confederate debacle at Wahatchee, Bragg already had an unqualified, if small, success that was already going on in East Tennessee. With
1: the hopes of success at Chattanooga lost, along with Lookout Valley, it was only natural that Bragg turn to the only option left to him, an attempt to build on his success in East Tennessee, hoping to turn it into something that would break the current deadlock at Chattanooga and take the initiative away from Ulysses S. Grant. Obviously, though, Bragg could not take the entire Army of Tennessee out of the lines at Chattanooga and move a hundred miles north to deal with Burnside. However, besides sending Stevenson's corps commander, John C. Breckinridge, to take over the operation, Bragg could also make plans to send reinforcements to Stevenson.
0: And in that regard, Bragg's decision was influenced by needs and wants in Virginia. You see, ever since Longstreet's departure from that theater, Robert E. Lee, in nearly every one of his communications with Richmond, had been clamoring for Old Pete's return, along with his veteran troops, of course.
1: Lee was unwavering in his conviction that the war would be won or lost in Virginia, and in connection with that belief, he had consistently opposed any transfer of troops outside his command. When he did lose units to other theaters, he constantly agitated for their return.
0: Jefferson Davis tended toward always wanting to give Lee his way, and thus the Confederate president came to think that, with the situation at Chattanooga deadlocked, Longstreet's command should, in fact, get back to Lee as soon as possible.
1: With a politician's knack for splitting the difference, Davis wrote to Bragg in late October to suggest sending Longstreet up into East Tennessee to deal with Burnside, and in that way, accomplish not only the recapture of Knoxville, but also placing Longstreet halfway back the road to Virginia.
0: The idea had several points to commend it. As we've mentioned, it would allow Bragg to build on his small, ongoing success in East Tennessee. It would please Jefferson Davis and Robert E. Lee, and perhaps, best of all, from Bragg's point of view, it would rid him of James Longstreet.
1: If any further inducement had been needed to persuade Bragg to part with Longstreet, Davis promised to reinforce him with two brigades then stationed in Alabama. That would go a ways to making up for the reduction in manpower at Chattanooga that Bragg would suffer as a result of sending Longstreet off to deal with Burnside. But really, by that point... Bragg considered even the outright loss of the number of good soldiers in Longstreet's divisions to be a gain, since it meant he would also be rid of Longstreet himself. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check.
0: On November 4th, Bragg issued the orders instructing Longstreet to proceed to East Tennessee, quote, to drive Burnside out, or better, to capture or destroy him.
1: Bragg stressed that, quote, the success of the plan depends on rapid movements and sudden blows, end quote. However, spoiler alert, there would be no rapid movements or sudden blows. Longstreet began complaining the very day he received the assignment. He wanted more troops. He was dissatisfied with the harnesses and wagons available for the movement. He quibbled over details of Bragg's instructions.
0: Next, Longstreet wanted more artillery. Then it was wagons again. And then it was the railroad about which he did have a point, since the line was not only in bad shape, but his troops often had to detrain and walk up hills beside the tracks because the engines were so underpowered.
1: While Old Pete offered complaints at a distressing rate, he didn't move his troops very rapidly. His command covered the first 60 or so miles to Sweetwater, Tennessee in eight days, whereas a month before, Stevenson had covered the same ground in five, even while approaching and skirmishing with the enemy.
0: The slow pace of Longstreet's movement, coupled with his unending complaints, wore on Bragg. He wrote to Longstreet, saying, Your several dispatches of today astonish me. Transportation in abundance was on the road and subject to your orders. I regret it has not been energetically used. The means being furnished, You were expected to handle your own troops, and I cannot understand your constant applications to me to furnish them.
1: On November 13th, as Sherman arrived at Bridgeport ahead of his troops, Longstreet's columns marched northward from Sweetwater. Burnside's Federals fell back skirmishing, but some of Longstreet's subordinates expressed concerns when it appeared Longstreet missed a chance, to capture or destroy most of the federal force opposing them.
0: The Confederates slogged on through the same rain that was making the march of Sherman's troops through the Cumberlands such a misery. But by November 17th, while Grant was still waiting impatiently to begin executing his plans at Chattanooga, Longstreet had his force in position confronting the federal fortifications at Knoxville.
1: However, he felt unable to do more. On the 20th, he wrote to Bragg to say that Burnside, whom he estimated to have 20,000 men within the works protecting Knoxville, could not get out, but by the same token, he, that is Longstreet, didn't have enough troops to get in. The next day, he wrote again, telling Bragg, I think that my force is hardly strong enough to warrant my taking his works by assault can't you spare me another division? It will shorten the work here very much.
0: At this point, Longstreet had perhaps a little more than 17,000 effectives, with another 3,000 expected to arrive any day from southwestern Virginia, while Burnside's true effective strength was around 12,000.
1: In and around Chattanooga, Grant could put 60,000 men into line of battle including Hooker's Force and Sherman's, while Bragg could muster only about 42,000. So needless to say, for Bragg to send more troops to Longstreet would entail considerable risk, since Bragg was certain that Grant's plans to attack the Confederate lines at Chattanooga must be nearly ready to kick off.
0: Bragg knew that Sherman's men were now in the Chattanooga area. In fact, reports indicated most of them had crossed the pontoon bridge at Browns Ferry several days before and then disappeared into the hills on the north side of the river across from the town.
1: Braxton Bragg realized that if Sherman's men reached their jumping-off point and Grant's big push began with Bragg's force made even weaker by further detachments to Longstreet, then the result could be a disaster for him at Chattanooga. Yet the only thing that might stave off defeat at Chattanooga would be a quick and decisive victory by Longstreet at Knoxville. And Old Pete seemed unable to pull that off without large numbers of reinforcements.
0: Bragg's dilemma deepened when he considered that perhaps the reason that nothing had been seen nor heard of Sherman's force recently was that Grant was sending Sherman north to Knoxville to rescue Burnside. If that were the case, Grant was strengthening his hand at Knoxville while Bragg vacillated about sending more troops to Longstreet.
1: In the end, Bragg decided to risk everything on the hope of quickly capturing Knoxville and in that way saving Chattanooga and wresting the initiative away from Grant. And so on November 22nd, he gave orders for the divisions of Patrick Clayborne and Simon Bolivar Buckner the latter now commanded by Bushrod Johnson, to pull out of line, march to nearby Chickamauga Station, and board trains to begin their movement north to reinforce Longstreet at Knoxville.
0: Claiborne, who would be in overall command of this two-division force, had the troops on the march at daybreak the next morning, the 23rd. Soon they were at the station, where trains came and went, hour after hour, hauling off their loads of soldiers.
1: At mid-morning, however, with one brigade of Bushrod Johnson's division and all of Claiborne's division still waiting to board the trains, the operation came to an abrupt halt when a dispatch arrived from Army headquarters. The message said that the Federals appeared to be stirring, and so any of the Confederate troops that hadn't yet set off were to be held at the station until further notice. There they waited until early afternoon, when another message arrived telling them to come back quickly, that the Yankees were attacking in force and the army was heavily engaged. That meant, for Braxton Bragg, who had gambled he'd have time to reinforce Longstreet, time had just run out.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is "In the Shadow of the Round Tops: Longstreet's Countermarch, Johnston's Reconnaissance, and the Enduring Battles for the Memory of July 2, 1863" by Alan R. Thompson.
1: Thompson's book obviously doesn't have anything to do with Chattanooga, although it does have to do with James Longstreet at Gettysburg. But it's just another book that was in our TBR pile, to be read pile, that we recently got around to reading and found it to be excellent, so we wanted to pass it along to all of you as a recommendation.
0: Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
1: As we wrap up the show, we want to take a moment and thank the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade for their support of the podcast. So a big thanks to John W., Peter C., David N., and Nuisance Factor.
0: And Henri Claude, James T., Hank D., and John H.
1: And thanks to Nancy C. for her donation.
0: Thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of the podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then, take care.
1: Thanks, everyone. Bye.